We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Today we are in our second week of a series called Back to the Basics, where we are looking at some of the foundational questions about our faith and the church and what that all means and why it's important for us. So if you've got a Bible, I'd ask that you turn to passages like Psalm 19, 2 Timothy 3, and 2 Peter chapter 1. So we're going to be referring to verses in those chapters of Scripture today quite a lot, and so I hope you'll place some bookmarks there uh, and follow along. The verses should be on the screen behind me as we do. Uh, Typically, as a church, we walk through books of the Bible verse by verse and say, what is God's Word saying to us from these verses? What is it speaking to us? What does it change in us? And in this series, we're doing something a little bit different where we're looking at what the Bible as a whole has to say about key questions. And so last week, we talked about the question, what is Christianity, and why should we believe it? And if you're interested in learning more about that, you can find that service on our Facebook page and some resources that will point you to some further uh, direction on that, and I'd feel happy to talk to you about that any time. But today, we're asking the question, what is the Bible, and why should we trust it? And so we're going to be looking at what Scripture has to say about itself and why Christians believe it. And so as we do that, the, the question is, what, what is the Bible? Well, for a lot of people, the Bible is, is simply a, a religious book with some inspiring quotes in it, you know, some a one, or, one or two wise sayings for life. And, and it might be a good book, but it's not a perfect book. And for, for some others, the Bible is, is simply fiction. It's, it's simply stories or fables. And, and maybe for some others, the Bible uh, is, is just this corrupted ancient text with lots of errors and discrepancies in it. Well, for Christians, the Bible is the word of God on which we base our entire lives. It's our firm foundation, as we sing. It's the word that never fails us. It's the word that shapes us and guides us and directs our paths. But if you're not there right now, if you're not in the spot where you believe what the Bible claims to be about itself, I would just encourage you, it's worth the time to look at what the Bible claims and to taste and see if it's actually that. Because the Bible is the longest and best-selling book in human history. And so if it has impacted that many people for that long, then it's worth our time to at least look at and try and understand. And so I hope we can do a little bit of that today as we look at these questions. What is the Bible and why should we trust it? So, so what is the Bible? Well, this, this book that we hold in our hands, this book that's in the pews in front of you, is one book that's made up of 66 different smaller books And it's a religious text that Christians have based their entire faith and life on for thousands of years. 
And, and this book is split up into two different testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, both of which tell the story of God and his redemption of his people, the Old Testament leading up to and pointing towards Jesus the Redeemer who is coming, and then the New Testament revealing Jesus to be the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Christ who had come to save God's people from their sin. And telling the story of how he did that through his life that he lived perfectly in our place, his death that he died for us, and his resurrection that gives us the hope of new life in him. And so this is what the Bible is. It's, it's a, a series of books that tell one story. But, but as, we, as we talk about this question, what is the Bible? The, the best place for us to go is to the Bible itself. See, if you want to know what something claims to be, it's best to go to that thing itself and see what it says. So uh, there's this wonderful little book called Can I Really Trust the Bible by Barry Cooper. I would heartily recommend it to you. It's a great resource on these questions we're talking about today. And what Barry does in this book is he he gives this illustration. He points his readers back to uh, one of our favorite childhood cartoons and storybooks, uh, Winnie the Pooh. And, and as he does so, he, he reminds his readers that there was this experience oftentimes with, with Pooh that where he, he saw this jar of honey, and on the outside it said it was honey, and so as he, as he sees the jar of honey, he sees that it says it's honey, and then he says, well, I, I, I really need to open it, I really need to see what's inside it and make sure that it's not cheese or it's not something else that's yellow, and, and taste and see that it is what it claims to be. And it's similar with what we need to do with Scripture. See, if we're to answer the question, what is the Bible and why should we trust it? There's no better place for us to go than the Bible itself. There's no better way to understand what the Bible is than to look at what it claims about itself and then to taste and see if it actually is what it says it is. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at what does the Bible claim to be, and there's three things that I want you to see about what the Bible claims to be, and then there's four things, four reasons that I'll say we need to trust it. So first, the the, the Bible is revelation. Second, the Bible is inspired. And third, the Bible is sufficient. This is what the Bible claims to be for us. So first, the Bible is revelation. The Bible is God's necessary revelation of himself to us through written words that are written down for us in this book. In Psalm chapter 19, if you've got it there, it'll be on the screen behind me, we read this about creation. God reveals himself through creation. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And then he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy." And so in Psalm 19, we we read truths about how God reveals himself. And the first thing that we see is that God does reveal himself through his creation, through what he has made. As the creator makes creation, he shows something of who he is. But the kind of revelation that we need from God can't stop there at creation. It's kind of like if you think about what an artist does, you you can get to know an artist through their work to a degree, right? Right? 
If you see a painting, if you, if you hear a song, if, if, you, if you see something that an artist has created, in their work you can see something of who they are. They reveal something about themselves. But if you really want to get to know the artist, if you really want to get to know the creator, then you have to ask them what they have to say, what they have to say about their work why they did what they did, and what its purpose is, what it's meant to inspire in you, what it's meant to change in you. This is how, this is how God's revelation works. He reveals something of himself through creation that we can know that there is a God, there is a creator who has made all things, but we also need him to speak to us. We need him to say words to us. And so if you remember when we were in John chapter 1 a little while ago as a church, when we talked about what God was saying to us there through the word of God, both written and revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, what we said is that we need to speak to one another in order to understand each other and know each other deeply. And so we talked about how husbands need their wives to tell them what is going on in their minds so that they can understand, right? And many times, uh, the, the difficulty is, is that you and I, guys, we don't listen. But if we really want to know our wives on a deep level, if we want to know what they're wanting from us, what can lead to a thriving relationship with them, then we have to understand the words that they speak to us. And vice versa. You see, to know someone, we need them to speak. We can know something about someone through something they've made, but we have to hear their words and understand what they're saying to actually know them. And this is what we have in Scripture. Psalm 19 starts about talking about God's revelation through creation, and then we'll see here in just a few moments, it goes on to talking about God's written revelation and how it's sure, it's perfect, it's reliable, and it's good. You see, God does reveal himself through creation, but we also need him to reveal himself through words. In 2 Timothy 3, we read this. As Paul talking to Timothy, his disciple, he says, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so Paul just said, if we, if we want to know God, if we want to be saved, if we want to be reconciled to God in right relationship with him, then we need God's word. We need the scriptures that Timothy was acquainted with since he was a child. We need to hear what God has to say about himself and the way back to him like we talked about last week. Jesus reveals himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so we must hear what God is saying about himself and what he's saying about how we can live in relationship to him if we're to know him. And he's, good news for us is that he's revealed it to us in his word. He's given to us his own words about himself. You see, and, and ultimately, what we find in this book is not just that God has revealed himself, but, but that he's revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, if we're to know what the Bible is about, then we have to look at Jesus because the Bible is all about Jesus. 
You see, in, in John chapter 5, Jesus says that the entirety of Scripture points to him. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, talking about the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And he goes on to say, For if you had believed Moses, talking about the first five books of Scripture, Genesis through Deuteronomy, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. So Jesus just said that the first five books of the Bible are about him. That Moses, as he was writing to us in Genesis through Deuteronomy, was looking forward by the inspiration of God's spirit as he wrote and writing things that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words, Jesus says. John writes that Jesus is God's word in person and present with his people. In John chapter 1, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is God's word present with his people. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. As we read earlier in our service from Hebrews, that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, which we read in Scripture. But now, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. You see, God is revealing himself through the written word, which points us to the eternal word, Jesus Christ. The Bible is about God's revelation of himself in Jesus so that we might know him and be reconciled to him. This is what the Bible claims to be, is God's revelation about himself. Secondly, we see that the Bible is inspired. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, so that he might be equipped for every good work. Timothy, or Paul, writing to Timothy, is saying that Scripture is breathed out by God. Its source is God himself. Scripture comes from God. And then in 2 Peter, we read this. 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Lamps expose what's there. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, listen to what Peter says about Scripture. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's what Scripture is saying about itself. It's saying that all Scripture is breathed out by God, which means it comes from God himself. That, and, and Peter notes that Scripture is not from man. God used men to write his words, but Scripture comes from God himself. The Scriptures have God as their source. 
And he uses the intellect, the skills, the abilities of imperfect men to write his perfect words. You see, this is what inspiration means. This is what Christians mean when they say the Bible is inspired. Is that God is the source of his word. He speaks it and he uses imperfect beings like you and me to write his perfect word down. He used men as they were carried along by his spirit to write this book that we have. It's not, it's not these men's own interpretation. It doesn't matter what Moses or Paul or Peter think. It matters what God thinks. And what they're writing down for us is not their own interpretations. Unless their interpretation is God's. See, they don't care to communicate to you what they think unless it's what God thinks. When the biblical authors are writing scripture for us, they are writing God's own words. See, and it's kind of hard for us to understand this idea, the inspiration of Scripture, that men could be writing the words of God. But I think a helpful way to understand it is to think about a time where maybe you as a parent or a grandparent or you as a boss with an employee, you had a child or an employee do a task that they could not do without you, that you had to be present for, because the means by which that child or that employee could actually do what you'd ask them to do was your own presence, your own wisdom, and your own ability. That's what empowered them to do the task. And this is what's happening with Scripture. Men cannot write the words of God on their own, but only as they're carried along by God's Spirit, as Peter teaches us, as God breathes out his word, as Second Timothy says. God is using imperfect men to write his perfect words. And what we can trust in is not imperfect men, but the perfect God whose presence, power, wisdom, and ability is what we read in the words of Scripture. And thirdly, we see that the Bible is sufficient. You see, the the Scriptures contain everything that we need to know to know God and live godly lives in relationship to him. The, the, the Bible knows you better than you know you because God knows you perfectly. The Bible can help you because it's God-inspired wisdom for life and godliness. See, first, when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, we have to talk about how the Bible knows you. The Bible knows you better than you know yourself. The only thing, that, the only thing better than reading the Bible is the Bible reading you. And what I mean by that is is when you read scripture, you begin to see things about yourself that you didn't realize before. The the Bible begins to read you. It begins to interpret you. It begins to show you things about yourself that you didn't see before because all you had was your own wisdom and you needed God's wisdom. You'll realize that as you read scripture, it knows things about you that you don't know about you because God knows everything about you. When we read in Hebrews chapter 4, here's what we read. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, God knows you in a way that you don't even know yourself. His word is able to expose the thoughts and intentions of your heart that maybe you don't even see right now. Because he knows everything. He knows all things. And his word is, is sharp and living and active, which means it, it moves and breathes. It still works, changing us. It still does things in us. When we read scripture, God himself is speaking to us at a heart level. When we read the Bible, we are reading the words of the eternal God as he speaks to us and brings about change in us. And sometimes we don't even realize the change he's doing. That's the beauty of it, is that his word is so able to discern our hearts, to see the thoughts that we have, the intentions we have, before we even realize them. And he's able to expose them and bring real change that lasts. See, Jeremiah says our, our hearts are deceitful above all things, and, and who can understand them? But then he goes on to say that the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind, that God is able to see the depths of your heart that you don't even understand yet. This is why we go to Scripture, because God understands us in a way that we need to be understood because we need to understand his wisdom and how it makes us new and how it changes us. There's no part of you that's hidden from God. He sees it all. Even if you hide it from other people or from yourself, there's no part of you that God does not see. There's no intention of your heart that he cannot know. See, one of the reasons that you ought to place your faith in Jesus Christ is because he sees you as you actually are, like no one ever has the worst parts of you. And he loves you anyway. He sees the things that you hide from everyone else in your life. And, and, and he didn't just love you enough to die for you. He counted it a joy to go to the cross for you. This is why we ought to trust this kind of wisdom revealed in this book. It's because it's, it's, it's so ridiculous that it has to be true. I know that sounds crazy, but, but what Paul says about the gospel is that it, it's, it's, it's foolish to those who won't be saved, to those who won't be reconciled to God, but it's God's wisdom to those of us who trust in Jesus, and, and, and we need this gospel. Tim Keller says this about the gospel. He says, the, the gospel says, I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me but so loved and valued that he was glad to. This is the beauty of the God who's revealed in Scripture to us, is that he sees you as you are. He sees all of the things that you hide, the affair, the addiction. He sees the patterns of corrupted thinking and, and desires that you hide from everyone around you, and he loved you enough to die for you. He sees the awful things that you think about the people who offend you at work and at home and everywhere else that you go, and he still loved you enough to die for you. He knows your temptation to run to everyone and everything else in creation for refuge, security, safety, and meaning, and he still loved you enough to die for you. 
This is the God that's revealed to us in the scriptures. Secondly, we see the, the Bible can help you. This is what we have to talk about when we talk about sufficiency is that Second uh, Timothy, we read that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. It's, it's good. It's useful for things like teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So that the man of God, the one who trusts in God and walks with Jesus, can be complete. He can be equipped for every good thing in life. Second Peter 1, we read, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him, talking about Jesus, who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us, listen to this, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine, divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world. So what Peter just told us is that in God's word, God has given us everything that we need for life, everything that we need for godliness, everything that we need to live a life filled with joy and connection to our creator. And, and he said that, that, that the means by which God has given his own power for this purpose is, is through the knowledge of Jesus Christ who's revealed to us in Scripture. And that God has even given us his own precious, very great promises in his word. That's where we read the promises of God, right? God has given us his own promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. So that you might become more like the God who made you. You might see his holiness and grow in holiness. You might see his love and grow in love that you might know his patience and steadfastness and grow in patience and steadfastness. See, the Bible is sufficient to help us with the problems of life. This, this means there, there's no problem in your life that Scripture cannot help you with, that it can't help you respond rightly to. Whether you're in this room today and, and you struggle with anxiety constantly or depression or you're always angry and bitter and you can't seem to shake it. There, there's no problem in your life that the scriptures cannot help you respond rightly to. They speak to all these things that we walk through in life. As Paul says, there's no temptation in life that's not common to man. That's not common to others' experience. And God's word speaks to all of them. He provides a way of escape. That's by trusting in him. It's by looking to his word. It's by understanding what he's said. Just like there's no problem in life that the Bible can't help you with, there's no area of growth that scripture speaks of that, that, that it cannot help you with. The scriptures help us grow in wisdom. They help us grow in diligence. They help us grow in truth-telling, forgiveness, generosity, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, as we read in Galatians 5. The scriptures help us with all these things. But, but here's what, when we say the Bible is sufficient, here's what it doesn't mean. It, it, it doesn't mean that there's not knowledge outside the scriptures. You see, we gain knowledge and insight from all sorts of things, science, history, culture, works of art and literature. So, so when we say the Bible is sufficient to help you in life, we're not saying that there's not other kinds of knowledge that are helpful or good. 
We're saying the Bible provides everything that you need for life and godliness. Everything you need to live a godly life. Everything you need to live your life in relationship to your maker. Filled with joy and understanding his purpose for your life. It doesn't mean that there's not help outside the scriptures. We get help from medicine, from doctors, from vitamins, from an exercise and rest routine. We get help from all sorts of places because, as James says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming from God himself. He's the one who made creation. But when we say the scriptures are are sufficient, we're saying they have everything you need to live a godly life. Not that there's not other good and helpful things in life. We're saying that this is a firm foundation you can rely on. You can stand on. It stays. See, the Bible claims to be revelation from God about himself. It claims to be inspired. Its source is God himself. And it claims to be sufficient to help us with life. So here's the question we have to ask. If this is what the Bible claims to be, then why should we trust it? Here's what it's said about itself. So, so we've read honey on the jar. Here's what it claims to be. So now how do we know that we can trust it? Well, just like Pooh did with the jar of honey, we open it up. We go to it. We taste and see that it's good, that the Lord is good, that the Lord it speaks of is good. We go to the scriptures themselves and and we begin to understand that it actually is what it says it is. You see, when we talk about this idea of trust, here's, here's how the dictionary defines trust. Reliance on the integrity, strength, ability, or surety of a person or thing. It's, it trust is confidence. So to, so, to, so to trust something means to rely on it. It's just like when, when, when you see teams do, do trust falls, where they have somebody standing behind them, and I'm not going to demonstrate for you because I don't. But when you do a trust fall, you fall back and somebody catches you. You you rely on them. Trust means to rely on something. It's just like when when I walk on the stage, I'm trusting that it's going to stay underneath me and it's not going to fall out from underneath my feet. And as you walk on the sidewalk, as you walk on the pavement to your car, you're you're trusting it's going to remain there, that you can rely on what your feet are stepping on. And so when we talk about why, why should we trust the Bible, we're talking about why we should rely on it. Why we should base our whole life on it and go to it for wisdom and, and, and direction and everything that we need in life. Why should we rely on this book? Well, there's, there's four reasons, I think. One is that the Bible is consistent. Secondly, it's reliable. Third, it's true. And four, it's life-changing. So you should trust the Bible because it's consistent. The Bible tells this one grand story of redemption that God has been working out throughout thousands of years of human history. It it tells the story of redemption over 66 different books written by about 40 different authors over a span of about 1,500 or more years. And they tell the same story. How amazing is that? that 66 different books are telling the same story, that 40 different authors are writing about the same thing, and that they wrote over a span of 1,500 plus years. 
which means that many times these authors of Scripture didn't have all of the writings accessible to them that had come before them. And yet they write about the same things, the same God, and they write in a consistent way that doesn't, it doesn't divert and tell a different story. It tells the same story. The Bible is incredibly consistent. The Bible demonstrates fulfilled prophecies that were written hundreds and thousands of years before the events that fulfilled them. In 2 Peter, we read that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you'll do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter's saying, now, now we've, got, we've got the prophecies of Scripture more confirmed, fully confirmed, and, and we see their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. There's no scripture that came from some man's interpretation. God was carrying the authors of scripture along by his spirit. And then we see the fulfillment of the things they wrote about in the person and work of Jesus. There's, there's countless passages we could go to to understand this idea of the fulfillment of things that these authors had written hundreds of years beforehand in Jesus. But here's just, just three places. The Old Testament prophesies that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. In Isaiah 7, 14, we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Jesus, we see that. It prophesied the place of his birth in Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Talking about Jesus, the place of his birth, the good shepherd who would come. And then the Old Testament prophesies that he would, he would die a gruesome death. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace by his wounds. We are healed. That's Isaiah writing about the cross he knew nothing of. And in Jesus, we see the fulfillment of Isaiah's words. You see, Scripture is consistent. Secondly, we see it's reliable. You should trust the Bible because it's reliable. When, see, when we compare the Bible to other ancient texts that, we, that, we, that scholars agree are reliable, in terms of how they've been transmitted and the copies that we have of them. When we compare the Bible to them, the, the Bible surpasses them by, by leaps and bounds. It's, you see, we, have, we often have more copies of biblical texts than we do of many other reliable ancient documents. 
We, we often have fewer differences or inconsistencies amongst those many copies of biblical documents. We often have fewer discrepancies or differences between those copies, sometimes written decades or hundreds of years apart, about the same, the same text, the same te- passage copied. We have fewer discrepancies oftentimes than many of the other ancient texts that we see as reliable. You see, and, and those differences in those copies of biblical manuscripts, they're, they're often minor, not, not affecting the meaning in any significant way of the passage. See, they often have to do with, with scribal errors, spelling errors, and so, or, or when a scribe would, would look to the original and then he'd look back to the new copy he was copying and, and he would miss his place and so he'd, he'd write the next verse instead of the verse he was actually on. And so, so the types of inconsistencies that you hear people talk about and, and the way they over-exaggerate them is ridiculous. Like the Bible is incredibly reliable in terms of its transmission and how it's been given down to us. Thirdly, you should trust the Bible because it's true. It's, it's historical. It's without error. The, the, the Bible is true because it's, it's a historical account. And, and Luke chapter 1, here's, here's what Luke tells us. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So Luke is talking about the things that have happened in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. See, Luke was a doctor, and Luke was a historian. He, he writes this account of Jesus' life and ministry that we read in his gospel, and, and he says, as he's writing it for this, this man, Theophilus, who was likely a, a well-known, a high-up official in, in the Roman government, and, and he's writing for this type of a man, and he writes a reliable historical account. He seeks out testimonies and sources, and, and he writes down a reliable, orderly account of Jesus' life and ministry that you could source check, that you could go check with people who had seen the events and make sure that what Luke was writing was true. You see, uh, the, the biblical authors are, are incredibly concerned with accuracy and eyewitness testimony. Paul mentions over 500 people that saw the risen Lord Jesus after his resurrection at one time. And as he says that in in Corinthians, what he says is that many of these people are still alive and you can go ask them right now. It's not just me saying this. There were 500 dudes at one time that saw him. You can go ask any of the ones that are still alive. There's many of them that are at the time he was writing that. See, the Bible, the biblical authors are often incredibly self-deprecating as they write. You know, I mean, I mean we read things about the apostles that, that if you were trying to start a religious movement, you would never include them. If you were trying to cook something up, you would never include the things that we read in Scripture. Peter chops a guy's ear off like he didn't even have any aim. And, and, and we read about uh, <laughs> these two guys' mom coming to Jesus and asking for the spots that is right and left. 
How embarrassing would that be? In scripture, recorded forever for all of the church after that, your, your mom coming to ask Jesus for something for you. I mean, we, we read just countless times this, the biblical authors, uh, they have this self-deprecating view of themselves because they're not out to, to sell you on something. They're not out to sell you on something about themselves. They're not out to show you something that's true about them, but that's true about God and what actually happened. They want to write a reliable account for you. In the Bible, we see this incredibly countercultural view of women. For the time in which it was written, it's incredible the things that we read. We shouldn't have been reading them for the time in which these passages were written. Both men and women in Genesis are called God's image bearers. The Old and New Testaments celebrate many women who are influential and essential to the plans of God. We read about people like Deborah, Ruth, Esther, Elizabeth, Mary, just to name a few. The resurrection of Christ is first discovered by a couple ladies, and they're the first ones to testify to the truth of this event. See, in the culture the Bible is written in, you don't include things like that about women. That would have been incredibly countercultural. And, and in Scripture, here's the greatest reason I think you should believe the Bible. The gospel itself that the king, instead of just coming to conquer by brute force, came and died for his people. A gruesome death on a cross. Taking our shame, taking our sin, being despised and rejected by men. The king of kings came and counted it a joy to die on the cross for you. That's why you should believe the Bible. It's because that kind of message does not inspire anyone unless it's true, unless it actually happened, unless it's real. There aren't other world religions that say the king of kings, the creator of the universe, came as a man and died on a cross for the sins of the world that people who rejected him, that spat in his face, that rejected every good thing that he gave them and, and said, this is going to be good for you, for your joy. He died for them. No other world religion makes this claim because they know it's ridiculous unless it's true. See, you should believe the Bible because it's true. It's, it's without error in everything that it intends. When Christians talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, they're talking about what the Bible is attempting to say. So, so in Psalm 19, we read that the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. See, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's talking about Scripture, talking about God's Word, how it's perfect. It, it's perfect in everything that it intends to say. And the reason for this is that Scripture comes from God, like we heard from Peter. No Scripture comes from the interpretation of man or the will of man, but every prophecy is produced by God, His Spirit, carrying these men along as they wrote. It sources God Himself. 
And so we have this, these, these kinds of objections that come up. But, but, but didn't biblical authors believe things about the earth, like the earth was flat and that, and that the, the skies had windows through which rain came and, and such? Like, like how, how can you ask me to believe this? Well, it's true. The biblical authors did have views about the physical and geographical world that, that scientifically we know is not true. Earth's not flat. There's not actually windows in the heavens that, that open and shut. But Moses, as he's writing in Genesis, he's not attempting to make that scientific argument that this is how that the earth is flat or that the, the windows actually open and close for rain to come. What he's trying to tell you about is the God who made everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's trying to tell you about God. He's not trying to tell you about his scientific view of the processes God used. He's not trying to tell you this scientific argument about how things work. He's trying to show you who God is, the God who's responsible for it all. So the Bible is without error in everything that it actually intends to say, but sometimes we try to say that it's saying things that it's not. You won't find an error in Scripture about something that scripture is actually saying. You can invent errors that aren't there. But the Bible is without error in all that it intends to say. All that the scriptural authors are actually arguing. The key is, is that we have to look at what they're actually saying. We have to actually open the jar and taste the honey and see that it's good. You see, you should trust the Bible ultimately because it's life-changing. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a majority of the New Testament, or, or, or was involved with it, Luke even followed Paul. And Luke writes the longest gospel we've got, the longest account of Jesus' life and ministry. And, and, and he's a doctor and a historian trying to write a reliable account for us. And Luke knew Paul and followed Paul and got a lot of his content from Paul. See, Paul influenced most of the New Testament and this man, Paul, if you go back and read his story, he was a persecutor of the church. He thought Christianity was ridiculous and stupid. He mocked God's people. He threw them in prison. He wanted nothing to do with this ridiculous message. Nothing to do with it. And then Jesus revealed himself. Jesus knocked him down and showed him his glory showed him who he was, showed him that he was the resurrected Christ, the Messiah that had been prophesied about for ages to come. And Paul writes most of what we have in our New Testament, this guy who didn't want anything to do with it. See, the scriptures and the God of the scriptures in Jesus Christ changed his life. There's this woman that I, I, I highly respect and, and read a lot of her, her works and, and listen to her. Speak. She, uh, her name's Rosaria Butterfield, and she has written some incredible books about uh, gender and sexuality. And her, her story's incredible because Rosaria was the head of the LGBTQ studies department at Syracuse University. She was a lesbian with a live-in girlfriend and wanted nothing to do with the Bible at all. In fact, she set out to write a book that was going to discredit and disprove the scriptures. And so as, as she did this, she, she read through the Bible 
seven times that year as she was doing research for her book in which she wanted to destroy the thing. And, and she began meeting with, with, a, with a pastor and his wife to ask them questions so that, so that she could just really see how ridiculous it was what these Christians believed. So she's reading the Bible, and, and you know, her first time through, she's probably like, man, that's ridiculous, that's stupid. And the second time through, she's like, oh, man, well, at least now I'm starting to understand what it's trying to say, I think. And, and as she goes through this process of reading the scriptures and talking to this pastor and his wife, at some point, the Lord radically changes her heart. And she's a new person. And, and now she is one of the foremost authorities in the biblical counseling movement as to how to help people who are struggling with gender and sexuality. She no longer teaches at Syracuse. Instead, she travels around the world speaking to Christians and to churches about how they can help. How they can help people see that the beauty of the gospel is better than our own desires. And she's married with kids and traveling the world to proclaim Jesus. Because what she realized as she opened the book but she began to taste it, and she saw that it was good. So if, if you're here today and, and, and you're not there yet, that's all right. But can I just ask one thing of you? One thing. I appreciate you listening to the message. But if you could do one more thing for me. If you don't have a Bible, would you take the one in the pew in front of you? And, and take it home with you. That's our gift to you. And just open it up and taste and see if it's actually what it claims to be. Read it. I mean, what do you have to lose? If it's not true, what's it going to do? But if it's true, it could change everything for you. And so if you don't have a Bible, the one in the pew in front of you right now is, is our gift to you. We want you to have that. And we've also got uh, some CSB Bibles available uh, at the front and back of the sanctuary today. If, if you don't have a Bible, we don't want you to leave today without having one. So that's our gift to you. You don't have to pay anything. We just want you to open it and read it. And taste and see if it is what it actually is. So would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us. That you've shown us who you are. You've shown us your plans for us. And that you've sought us out, that you want us, you want a relationship with us, you have pursued us in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and God, I just pray for my friends right now that, that still have questions. God, would you, would you speak to them through your word? Would you, would you help them as they open it up to, to understand what it's actually saying and, and why that matters for their life? God, would you use your word that never fails us, that's a sure foundation, and would you help us to build our lives upon it as we trust in you and look to Jesus for hope and life. Amen.